going to be in Daniel uh, chapter 1. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, uh, we'll be there in a second. And look, if you don't have a Bible, you can find one underneath the seats around you. We would love for you to be following along. So if you've ever been to our house, we have this big two-story entryway, and uh, we call it the ballroom because when the girls were little, they used to pretend to be Cinderella in the castle. We still call it the ballroom, but it was also the source of a game we used to play, and I'm gonna dem- it was a game of catch, and I'm going to demonstrate that for you this morning, um, but I'm going to do it with a doll because, quite frankly, I don't think you guys will have the stomach to watch me do this with a real child, and you will know what I mean in a second. <clears throat> So, so I said it was a game of catch. What I didn't mention was the ball was the child, okay? So, um, and it wasn't a baby, it was a toddler, but I can't find a toddler doll. So I'd go into this two-story ballroom and I would just start throwing them up, right? Easy. So here's the thing. I like to achieve and I like to beat my past achievements. So this became a game for me, how high up I could throw this child, all right? So you can just know where this is going to go. So when it, and I kept throwing it higher and higher, and eventually I got to the point literally where I was doing this. I was squatting all the way down, and I would thrust up and hurl this child up as high as I could. And I know what you guys are thinking. The dads are like, yeah, that sounds right. Like, I'm going to go and do that tonight. The rest of y'all are like, that's not right. That's not right. This is why you should have to take a test to become a parent. But here's what I would notice, is that the higher up I would throw them in the air, I would start to see their expression change, right, from excitement to total terror. They would be high up in the air and being like, okay, wait a minute, dad has to catch me, because if he doesn't, I'm meeting Jesus a lot faster than I expected. But when I caught them, when I caught them every time, I need you all to go out and find my wife and tell her that. When I caught them every time, you can also guess what would happen, is that look of terror would turn to relief and then joy and then again, daddy, again, right? And and I caught them every single time because despite y'all thinking I'm crazy, I knew what I was doing. See, I had a plan, right? When they're up in the air, like my hands are up above me, my eyes are locked in on them, there is nothing that would have happened at that moment that would have detracted me from that focus, right? That's my job as a dad is to protect them, believe it or not. I was going to protect them. And I think sometimes it can be like that with us and God. So we're not kids, but even as adults, I think we can walk through some really hard times where we could feel like that child up in the air flailing about without a net not sure what comes next and we start to ask questions like why where is God in this and is he gonna catch me it is it is scary and for some of us who don't like to be who like to be in control it is not fun and I don't know if any of you guys are there right now but I can tell you my wife and I are there right now up in the air wondering what comes next And we got to have the right biblical perspective of why these things happen and where God is in those moments. We got to have that down for when we're in those times. Thankfully, uh, we have a God that knows and loves us and gives us this entire book of Daniel to cling to in the midst of those trials. And in that book, he tells us look, I am Lord over everything. 
I am absolutely sovereign. Even though you may not see it, I haven't left you. My eyes are locked in on you, and I will catch you. And that truth should compel us to walk faithfully with the Lord and even prosper in the most difficult of times. That is the message of Daniel. And so our main point this morning that we want to take away is this, God's sovereignty leads me to steadfast faithfulness. So let's jump in and see what the Lord has for us. Now, uh, Daniel 1, verse 1, before we start, a little bit of history. There's two parties in this story. One is Judah, which is the remnant of what's left of Israel. So Judah and Israel, are we're going to say they're the same for this story. And then there's the nation of Babylon, which is also called Shinar and also called the Chaldeans. Okay, so two parties, lots of different names. Here we go. Verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Uh, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, Youths without knowledge, or youths without uh, blemish, sorry, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Uh, Our first point this morning is to see that God is sovereign over everything big and small. And Daniel doesn't waste any time here, right? He flies through a lot of background and history in two verses because he wants to get to the meat of the story in verse 3. And I think the reason why he does that is because the people he's writing to, they have lived this history and they know this history. Uh, but we can't, we got to camp here for a second because it contains one of the central themes of the book of Daniel. In verse 1, we learn that Nebuchadnezzar, king of the most powerful nation on earth, has moved against the nation of Judah, and as symbols of his victory, has carried off relics from the Jewish temple. So, so kingdoms, they grow by conquest, right? They take over other territories. So if we stop here in verse 1, it looks just like another notch in the Babylonian belt, right? The, the greater nation taking over the weaker nation and seemingly conquering the Israeli god. Moving on. But Daniel says there's more to this story than what we see. We have verse 2, where it says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. That phrase, and the Lord gave, is so critical to this book. We're going to see it three times in this chapter alone, and we're going to come back to this phrase more than once. Daniel says, look, despite what you may see in verse 1, There's more that's happening. Make no mistake that despite present appearances, the Lord is in control. Always has been, always will be. 
And, and to emphasize God's sovereignty here, the underlying word used for the Lord is Adonai. Now, there's all kinds of names and descriptions for God in the Bible, right? And a lot of those names are translated the Lord. But it's not by accident that Daniel uses the word Adonai in the scripture because it means owner and ruler and it means master. Uh, listen to some of the other ways the term Adonai is used in scripture. This is all coming from Psalms. Um, in chapter 2, it says Adonai is sovereign over nations, kings, and rulers of the earth. That's what we're seeing right here. In chapter 8, it says Adonai is sovereign over man and all creatures. And in chapter 37, it says Adonai is sovereign over both the wicked and the righteous. God is sovereign over everything, big and small. Daniel's saying, look, it's not the brilliance of King Nebuchadnezzar, it's not the might of Babylon that brought the downfall of Judah. No, it is simply because it was the sovereign will of Adonai that made it happen. So in verse 2, we see that God is sovereign over the movements of kingdoms and nations. But now starting in verse 3, we're going to see that he is also sovereign over the paths of individual people as well. In quick order, we get to the story and we're introduced to our characters, Daniel and Rack, Shack, and Benny. You guys know that veggie television. I, I will never think of them as any other name. Rack, Shack, and Benny. See, the temple relics, they weren't the only spoils of war. The Babylonians carry off men from Judah to strengthen the power of Babylon, to weaken Israel, to remind Israel, seemingly, of their submissive state. And, and these weren't just ordinary men, right? The Bible describes them as young and strong and handsome, skillful and smart. If I were to kind of describe them in today's terms, I might say this. They were men that were national merit scholars, that could bench press their body weight, that could model for GQ, that could do construction work around the house, um, that were sons of national leaders and could speak to crowds like this without even skipping a beat, right? Maybe some of us could tick some of those boxes, but all of us, Nathaniel excluded, of course, but all of us, these were the best of the best, and the Babylonians carry them off to the foreign land of Babylon to completely strip them of their identity, to indoctrinate them into a foreign education for three years, to give them different food, and to change their names that would honor Babylonian gods. And it's not hard to imagine where the Jewish people that Daniel writes to are. Discouraged, defeated, beaten down, stripped of their land, and their best kids kidnapped. But despite present appearances, God is in control. Okay, so uh, several years ago, there was this really popular TV show called Lost. Did anybody watch the show? Okay, all right. It was a great show. So here's the premise of the show. It's, it's a bunch of characters, a bunch of random people on a plane uh, that crash land on this remote tropical island. Great. Turns out it's not really a typical tropical island. They have a smoke monster. Uh, they have polar bears in the middle of the Pacific. Uh, they, they find a nuclear bomb buried underground. And the best part is that the island itself could travel through time. Right? 
It was so random, and the reason why I think the show was so popular is that you like the characters on the TV show. As they roll out mystery after mystery, you're like, what is happening? Right? And all these theories are thrown out, and you're just trying to figure that out. Okay, now, spoiler alert, if you're going to watch this show, just put a paper bag over your head for a second. Just one second. Okay, the final season, they start to answer some, but not all, of the mysteries. Okay? turns out the island is, houses the root, the source of all good and evil. I didn't say it was true. I just said it was good TV. And turns out that the airplane, the specific people on the plane, the timing of that crash, all pre-orchestrated by this guy named Jacob, who was the guardian of that source, and his goal was to recruit his next replacement so he could ride off into the sunset, and I won't tell you any more after that, because I'm sure I've hooked you on this show. <laughs> See, Lost had a mastermind with a plan pulled behind it, and, and so do we. But there's a big difference between that mastermind and uh, the characters on that show and us. And that is that we already know that there's a plan, and we know that that plan is good. See, maybe you haven't been in a plane crash, uh, but we can find ourselves in the midst of some really tough times. And when you're in that, can it not be so easy to forget this truth that God is sovereign over everything? It's easy to forget it, and so we ask questions like, why? Why now? Why is this happening? God, I'm tracking with you, right? I'm I'm doing well in my walk with you. Why? Why are you doing this? And I think we can pick up some answers to that question from our text this morning. First, sometimes things happen to us for consequences from our own sin. That's what's happening to the nation of Israel right here. The captivity is a direct consequence from a holy God for the nation's sin. The Old Testament is the story of the Jewish nation, right? God takes this one guy, Abraham, and blows him up into a million people and then eventually lands them and takes them to their own territory. And when he finally gets there, he says, look, I promise that I will continue to bless you if you will keep my commandments and my statutes, serving me with joy and a glad heart. Unfortunately, they go off the rails immediately. So that God sends prophet after prophet after prophet warning, stop, return to me, be reconciled, repent, but they do not. And as he promised, he enacts consequences here where the nation is invaded and taken off into captivity. Sometimes it's because of our own choices. Sometimes things happen to us because of the fallout of other people's choices. That's what's happening to Daniel and his friends, right? We know from the book of Daniel that these were men that were on fire for God, and they're like teenagers, so they wouldn't have contributed to the generations and generations and generations of sin that led to this captivity, but yet here they are wrapped into it and arguably affected more than anybody else. Sometimes things happen not because of sin at all, but simply because it's God's will for us, right? Jesus on the cross is the absolute best example of that. Jesus never sinned, but then he suffered greatly simply because it was God's will for him, 
And for us, praise the Lord for that. But regardless, here's what we have to remember. Regardless of why, for God's people, his purposes are always redemptive. God sends his people into captivity because he desires reconciliation. He desires restoration. This is a love story where we see the depths that God is willing to go to get our attention. And we will see that that will be accomplished because later on in Ezra and Nehemiah, the people will return back to the land and be reconciled with God. That's his purpose. God brings Daniel and his friends to Babylon to be used, and we're going to dive deeper into this in a minute, to show two people groups, the Babylonians and the Persians, that there is no one like our God. Romans 8.28 is a verse a lot of us know for a reason because it contains some great truths. It says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. For those who love him, he works all things, all things to the good. So maybe you're suffering through the weight of your own choices, the weight of others' choices, or simply because it's God's will for us. But no matter what the reason is, we don't lose hope, we don't despair, because God is in control. He is ever-present, He is never absent, and in those moments, we have to believe that. And with that hope in God's plan firmly set, we're going to now see how we're called to live in the midst of those trials. Let's pick back up in verse 8. It says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king." Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Our second point this morning is to see that because God is sovereign, I must be a vegetarian. I hope you guys didn't write that down because that's ridiculous. No, really, because God is sovereign, I remain faithful in all circumstances. You know, Daniel's immersed here in a foreign culture that goes against honoring the God of Israel in every way, but in verse 8, he takes his stand, which, which I've got to be honest, honest with you, it's weird to me that in the midst of three years of indoctrination of religious education, changing his name to honor a, a different God that he doesn't believe in, He makes his stand on what he eats. Why is that? 
The text isn't super clear, and commentators, they disagree on the causes, on the reasons. So I'm going to go through what those common theories are, tell you why I don't think that's true, and where I've landed. And hopefully it's helpful. Some say that Daniel objected because the food would not have been prepared according to Jewish custom laid out in the Old Testament, right? To keep kosher. Maybe. But then why reject the wine? The wine doesn't, doesn't conflict with Jewish culture. And there are certainly other cases in Daniel where it suggests that he had wine on other occasions. I don't think that's it. Some say because it came from the king's table, maybe Daniel objected to the fact that the food was likely first offered to foreign idols. Maybe. Uh, But there's nothing in the text that suggests the vegetables wouldn't have also come from that same table. It would have also been offered to foreign idols. I don't think that's it either. Rather, I believe Daniel's stance here was an expression of dependence on God as the author of his success, not the king, not Babylon. See, you could remain faithful to the Lord in the midst of foreign education, right? I mean, our kids do this every day. You can't hide physical development. I've, I've got a growing teenage boy that I'm not kidding, I'm going to have to get a second mortgage to pay for our grocery bill because he eats a lot of food all the time. He himself goes through like three gallons of milk a week. I'm all for it, right? I want him to be big and strong, but here's the thing. I think it would be difficult for someone like my son to prosper above and beyond all the rest on just vegetables and water. That's crazy. So if Daniel succeeded physically despite only eating that, who can you attribute that to but the Lord? Daniel's choice here was an act of steadfast faithfulness and worship to the Lord, the giver of all things, a declaration by Daniel of his priorities even in these trials saying, God is my source, God is my source, not Nebuchadnezzar. And note here that that it's an act of worship that is private between Daniel and the Lord. He doesn't make some public declaration amongst the whole group. He doesn't go to the king. He doesn't do like a hunger strike. He goes quietly and humbly to the head eunuch with his request. Now, it says the eunuch likes Daniel, but he's not crazy. And so he's like, look, if this doesn't go well, and I'm pretty sure it's not because you're going to be eating vegetables, my head's going to be on the chopping block, so I like you, but not as much as my own life. No. Daniel's not deterred by that. He just comes up with another strategy, still private. He goes to the eunuch's assistant and proposes a 10-day experiment. And because Daniel finds favor, the 10-day experiment proceeds. And we know Daniel's like this winsome, eloquent, handsome guy. Is that why he finds favor with these foreign leaders? No. See here in verse 9, for the second time, God gave Daniel favor. God is sovereign over big and small, even our standing before men. Are there any other people pleasers in the room? There's a great, there you go. There's a great mini message here, right? Favor and success in this life, they don't, they're not bestowed upon us from our bosses or our leaders or our peers or our children. 
Favors bestowed on us by Adonai, our sovereign God, because he has a purpose for it. And because of that, we, it should give us the same confidence that Daniel has in this passage where he makes a stand. Because God's favor was on them, it should come as no surprise that the 10-day experiment was a success. They were healthier and fatter than all the rest on vegetables to God's glory. See, Daniel makes his stand here because it interferes with his priority of worship of God. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. So uh, when Meg and I were... No, not when we were younger. When our kids were younger, uh, we got convicted to homeschool, so we did. Um, now, unless, in, 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 unless they wanted to be math majors, now so far we're 0 for 1 on that, um, we just did not feel qualified to teach high school, so off to public school they went. And when that happened, we faced some cultural challenges that some of y'all faced way before we did, but for which we were unprepared. Let me give you an example from Maddie's freshman English class. They had this assignment. She gave them a list of books, and they said, okay, pick one of them, and whichever one you pick, we're going to divide you up into those that pick the same book, and you're going to have like a book club for this unit. Great. So Meg got all the books from the first, first um, list and read them all. And they were awful. They were awful. They were full of anti-God material. And the subject matter wasn't even appropriate to us much less a 15-year-old girl. We didn't know what to do, right? Like, I didn't want to be that parent. We didn't want to fight the whole system. We certainly didn't want to ostracize our daughter that was new to school. We just wanted to worship God first. So, and I still remember this. So Meg uh, called the English teacher and said, we're not going to have her read any of these books. I wish that teacher, I wish I could say that teacher was like, no problem. She talked to Meg because I was in the room, she talked to Meg like we were like backwoods hillbillies that were depriving our kids of modern thought. She reluctantly agreed to give us another list of books, and this is when Meg recruited me to make sure she wasn't crazy, and I read two of them. They were awful! I remember sitting next to Meg and saying like, okay, just for the record, what's your ratio of bad words to good words on a page? Because there's like 75% of the words in this book are words that I don't say. So after several lists of books, uh, we didn't pick any of them. <laughs> we picked our own book, and Maddie became a book club of one. Thankfully, she survived, right? She survived. That's just one example of how our faith can clash with our culture. I don't have to tell you this, that we live in a time that celebrates relative truth and villainizes those that don't agree. We just celebrated the one-year anniversary of the reversal of Roe v. Wade, which was a tremendous answer to prayer and a victory for the church. And I have to say, for me, I was shocked at the level of vitriol from the other side about that decision showing that the world does not support life in the way that we do. We stand for prioritizing biblical community and coming together like this on Sunday morning and getting together during the week for small group. And the world tells us Sunday is just like any other day. 
We stand for the total inerrancy of Scripture and the lasting applicability of it, and there are those even in the church that will cherry-pick it and ignore the rest. At our worst, Meg and I dream about giving it all up, moving to the middle of Kansas, buying a farm, starting a commune, sticking our head in the sand, and living out the rest of our days. I'm not going to lie, that sounds good sometimes, right? But listen, in the midst of far worse, Daniel did not. He did not. So how do we live as Christians in the midst of a toxic culture? Again, we can pick some truths out of the book this morning. Okay, here we go. First, don't disengage. Don't, you guys got to hold me accountable. If I ever talk about moving off to Kansas, say, remember your sermon, don't disengage. I won't like it, but it's right. Don't disengage. Daniel didn't resist the government, and by the way, neither did Jesus. They didn't withdraw. They didn't bury their head in the sand. They engaged, and they submitted. Daniel chose to be salt and light in a saltless and dark world. Think about this. Daniel making his stand. Think about the impact, the risk he was willing to take for his faith, the impact that it had on the eunuch and the eunuch's assistant. Think about what that might have been. He didn't disengage. Second, he made a stand. Daniel wasn't afraid to take a stand and be different when that culture violated his dependence on God, and we shouldn't be afraid either. But listen, when we make a stand, third, do it for the right reasons, for the worship of God. We got to be wise in how we stand, church. We need to be sure we're doing it for the right reasons. Am I making my stand because I want to be right? Because I want to win? Because I want to be vindicated for my own self-glory and my self-righteousness? Or am I doing it as an act of worship to God, placing my priority first in Him? Do it for the right reasons, but fourth, uh, do it with gentleness and with submission. When Daniel did take a stand, he did it humbly, quietly, and privately. Philippians 4, 5 says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Look, the Bible's really clear. We are called to submit to our governing authorities. There may be times where that conflicts with our faith, and we can't, and maybe that's going to increase as we go into the future. But if at all possible, we are called to make our stand lawfully and gently. And finally, prioritize prayer. In our culture today, pray for God to move. Pray for revival. Pray for those who oppress you. Prayer is our most powerful weapon. God can do infinitely more than I can in making my stand, right? Listen, in Daniel, we are not instructed to make a hostile culture Christian. Rather, we are instructed to live as Christians within a hostile culture. So where in the midst of trials are you being called to make a stand? What's in your life right now that requires worshiping the Lord first? For Meg and I, it was putting aside our fear and engaging with this English teacher no matter what happened. Maybe God's calling you to say no to things that might conflict with Sunday mornings or getting in a small group during the week. Believe me, I have battle scars from that. That is no easy task today. 
Maybe you're being called to step out in faith and give more regularly with your time and finances when the culture tells us to spend all of it on ourselves to be happy. Or maybe it's even just things like when the conversations turn to current events, like this Target thing that just happened. Maybe you just gently and with submission, you offer up a different perspective to worship God in that way. Whatever it is, whatever God's calling you to do, we have to remember that the Lord is sovereign and works everything to the good, so we must press on in faith in the midst of suffering, standing for the Lord above all else. So let's pick back up in our story and see how Daniel's faithfulness leads to blessing. It leads to blessing. Verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Our last point is to see that my steadfast faithfulness leads to blessing. We learn here that the faithfulness of these four young men in the midst of tough times brought multiple blessings, right? We saw in the last point that it brought physical blessings, but here we see that it brought greater learning, skills, and even additional spiritual gifts to Daniel. And it says they were so successful with these gifts that at the end of their three years of training, in every matter of wisdom and understanding, in every test the king put before them, they were ten times better than everyone else in all the kingdom. That is an emphatic win. And what's the source of these blessings? I think you guys probably know. Verse 17, for third time we see God gave them. God is sovereign over everything, even our talents and our skills. So what's the purpose? Why did God bestow these incredible gifts on these guys at this time? Was it a reward for steadfast faithfulness? Sure. I think there was something deeper than that, and we see that here in the last verse. It says, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Seems like a throwaway verse, right, that we might run past, but there's a lot of truth in here. It says that Daniel was there in Babylon until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, King Cyrus was the king of Persia that came in and annihilated the Babylonian Empire and ended the Babylonian captivity. Okay, so we're going to do some, I know you guys have been waiting for this. We're going to do some math in church. It's going to be the high of your day. So we know the Babylonian captivity lasted 70 years. We're going to make this math easy. Let's say that Daniel was 20 when he came to Babylon. That means that he was 90 at the end of the Babylonian captivity, which means Daniel spent his entire life in captivity. Under foreign rule, away from his home, in the midst of a culture that stood against his God, serving with pagan leaders and sorcerers that out of jealousy would throw him into a den of lions. Seeing his friends get thrown into a furnace because they refused to bow down to an idol. 
They would see him take countless risks, speaking truth to kings that could easily have killed them anytime they wanted his entire life. And we say, this is a life of blessing? Yes. Yes. See, because it depends on your perspective, right? Here in chapter 1, these four men don't know all that's, laying it, that's coming before them, but even now God is equipping them and growing them spiritually to play a part in his plan of redemption. Even this verse 17 passing comment of Daniel being able to interpret dreams is going to take center stage in the very next chapter where he will go toe-to-toe with Nebuchadnezzar that will put him on a path where he would eventually play a role in helping this same king give glory to God. See, the ultimate blessing that comes to Daniel is to be used in even greater ways by God to accomplish his purposes, to bring God more and more glory, which is our mission as well. Remember I said he was, the Jewish people were discouraged that he writes to, and Daniel's purpose is to say, don't be. Be encouraged, have hope, even in the midst of these tough times, because God is even still using faithful people like Daniel to continue his plan of redemption and fulfill his covenantal promise. So I mentioned a little while ago about uh, this TV show called Lost. Okay, that was a while ago. Uh, My family and I were kind of hooked on this other TV show now called Alone, I don't know if you guys have heard of it. If you haven't, that's fine. I'm going to describe it to you. It's kind of a scary picture. So here's the premise, okay? It's a reality show. They take 10 people, and they don't know each other. They're typically survival experts. And they say, you can bring 10 items, 10 items. And then they take those people, and they do it by themselves. They separate them all, and they say, we're going to drop you off in the middle of this remote wilderness, completely alone. They don't even have cameramen. They have to self-record. And then it's just a competition to see who can last the longest. None of them die yet. But who can last the longest before they say mercy, right? So they have to face predators like bears and cougars and wolves. I mean, almost every season there's a guy on the very first day that sees even a hint of a wolf or a bear and it's like, I'm out. I didn't realize this was going to be happening. For us, our favorite part is watching them fend off starvation, which... No, that sounds weird that we say we like that. I don't like watching people starve to death, but the reason why we like it is because we, it's entertaining to see what they eat. I mean, they're eating bugs and slugs and like grass and snakes and rats and whatever else they can find. They have to face extreme cold and extreme weather. Remember, they have 10 items. And worst of all, they have to do it without any emotional support. The competition goes on for months. And to the one who remains faithful, who stays focused, who is committed, goes the prize. And just like there are blessings that come in that competition, if we are steadfast, if we endure through suffering, we will see blessings too. Now, we may not win a monetary prize, But there are blessings that come. First of all, uh, God does promise to meet our physical needs if we put him first, right? Um, A blessing for Daniel also was the friends that he had, right? We're talking about that a lot in small groups. We are meant to bear each other's burdens because that is a blessing to all of us. I think there's greater blessings that come when we are used to be a witness for his glory and encouragement to others. 
how we walk through these tough times, it matters. Non-believers can see us and be convicted by our peace and confidence that God will work all things for the good. I believe that. He will. Believers can be inspired and even challenged to follow your example. And listen, God may be uniquely equipping you to minister to someone down the road, walking that same path that could even bring them into a saving faith of Christ. And listen, we say that a lot, but think about it. If I can walk through something right now that is preparing me down the road, that God can use me to bring somebody to saving faith in Christ, hallelujah, what a blessing, all for his glory. I think there's an even greater blessing that comes through steadfast faithfulness. Philippians 3, Paul says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of, Christ in Christ, of God in Christ Jesus. Our greatest blessing through steadfast faithfulness is the prize of Jesus. See, God's sovereign plan always, always stretched way beyond the book of Daniel and the nation of Israel. Jesus Christ is living proof that God always had a plan. Remember I said earlier that God was going to return the people through Ezra and Nehemiah back to the land? I wish I could say that when they got there, they, got their, they learned their lesson and they lived out their days in perfect harmony with God, but they do not because they are sinful like we are. All morning we've been emphasizing God's sovereignty through this phrase, God gave, proving that he always had a plan. I'm going to give you one more. To forever solve the problem of sin, God's plan was always this. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. See, God sent his Son, Jesus, to earth a few hundred years after the story of Daniel, and Jesus would live a perfect, sinless life, but then take the punishment of our sins as he died on the cross and then be raised to life, conquering death and ushering in a new covenant of grace and mercy if we call on the name of Jesus. See, see, that's the ultimate blessing God gives us in the midst of our trials. If we accept Jesus as our Savior, we are forever cleansed, and then we see whatever we're suffering through now in the light of eternity. I said earlier that our main message this morning is that God's sovereignty leads me to steadfast faithfulness. Think back to that child being tossed up in the sky by their bat crazy dad. Never, never dropped. Flying higher and higher, uncertain what comes next. Is that you right now? Like, even as we walk through this passage, did God bring to you something that you're wrestling through or walking through? The temptation, if we forget these truths, is to ask questions. Why is this happening? What's your purpose? Where are you, God? And we're anxious, we're nervous, and we're scared, but don't be. Because Daniel says this morning, God's got you. 
His eyes are still on you. He is working out his plan and he's going to catch you. And in fact, with Jesus, he already has caught you. So we can praise him. We can make faithful, God-honoring choices despite the consequences, despite living in a culture that may war against us. We can bear up under our suffering knowing that our ultimate prize of Jesus is secure and awaits us. Let's pray together. Father God, we praise you this morning for your sovereignty. That you are sovereign, you are with us in everything, not a thing happens that surprises you. Lord, we praise you that you have always had a plan that led to Jesus on the cross, that forever took care of the problem of sin, that saved us, that rescued us from the pits of hell. And so, Lord, we ask you, we ask the Spirit to remind us of these truths every day, every hour, so that we can march forward and honor and worship you no matter what may come. In Jesus' name we pray.